Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode 63 of The Nathan Seawood Show. The Nathan Seawood Show, inspiring you to live an extraordinary life. Welcome to the show. I hope you're having a fantastic week so far. Uh, coming to you from New York again, where it's uh, super hot, super great weather. And just enjoying my last few days here before I head to the Greek Islands next week for our entrepreneurial sailing trip, which I'm super excited about. And uh, also excited about my guest today, Charlie Hone, who's on the show. And have you ever felt anxious in your life? Have you ever felt overwhelmed at work? Have you ever felt uh, so stressed to the point that you feel dead inside? Well, that's how Charlie felt a few years ago. And it really inspired him to look for different ways to overcome anxiety because a lot of the traditional ways that he tried didn't work. So, Charlie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nathan. I appreciate it. Yeah. And so to, just on that point, I mean, this conversation is really for people who feel tired of feeling those types of feelings or feeling like they're slogging through life and dealing with constant dread. So that's hopefully who will help. Yeah. And it's an epidemic, right? I mean, uh, if you look at, say, uh, the opioid crisis or anything that, I guess we can uh, look back and say that we have more of an anxiety crisis. Yeah, it's a mental illness epidemic. It's the costs are going to be crazy. But I mean, anybody who's experienced it, which is many, many people in our culture, I would, I would say it's over one in four at this point. Anybody who's experienced it knows how rough it can be. And uh, I don't know, I've, I've got the utmost compassion for anybody who, who does struggle with it. So if you have questions or anything related to that, feel free to throw them down and we'll try and cover them. Yeah, perfect. So anybody that's listening, if you have any questions, feel free to throw them in there. Anything on anxiety. Charlie is an incredible high performer and no doubt touch on some of his achievements. So if you have anything uh, about Charlie's life and his business and what he's achieved, fire in the questions. So Charlie, let's uh, go back before we dive in any more to the the stuff around your specialty. Uh, If we were to really know you, what would we have to know? I mean, if you were to really know me, (laughs) what would you have to know? Man, that's a great question. I don't, I'm not sure I can answer that. I'll, t- I'll start with like the typical kind of professional answer and then we'll go from there. So a lot of people know me for books that I've written, of course, uh, authors that I've worked with, uh, such as Tim Ferriss, I worked with for a number of years alongside Ramit Sethi, Tucker Max. I spent a good amount of time advising authors on how to market their books and hopefully become bestsellers. And now I'm head of video at Scribe. Scribe is a company in Austin that helps people who have a lot of wisdom and expertise write and publish their books. So people who are not professional writers, we interview the book out of them and we we help them create the book. And we've done, I think, close to a thousand books over the last four years or worked with a thousand people over the last four years. So, and I'm married in Austin with, of course, my wife and we have a one-year-old baby daughter and two dogs and it is really hot in my backyard today. Uh, but my my daughter's taking a nap. So that's why I'm out here. And uh, I don't know if you can hear my dogs barking. Yes, yeah, it's sounding very idyllic at the moment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So yeah. If we go back a little bit, if we if we go back to you know some of the defining moments in your early life that that led you down this path of wanting to be an author, wanting to help people with their message, uh, what are some of the defining moments that have led you to this point? 
I would say the first one was actually the recession in 2008 because I couldn't get a job. I couldn't, no one was hiring. And so mm-hmm. out of desperation, I started offering to work for free for people I admired and respected. So entrepreneurs and authors. And that's originally how I got my foot in the door with working with Ramit, then Tucker, then Tim. And how I, and when I was like 23, I want to say, I was hired as Tim's first full-time employee. And so I went from being a college graduate, working in my parents' basement on our ping pong table to going to San Francisco and just living the Tim Ferriss life. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I was working... Where did you come from? Where had you grown up? I grew up in Colorado in a city called uh, Highlands Ranch. It's 20 minutes south of Denver. And then where I got to... Uh, you asked what were some of the other defining events that got me to where I am? I would say burning out, basically. So I worked with Tim for three years, did great work. We worked well together. I really enjoyed it. At some point in the journey, I started taking it very serious. And it became about productivity, generating revenue. I I just took my role very serious. There, There came a point when I was helping with this big event where suddenly I found myself taking pills to stay awake for days at a time. So modafinil is this drug prescribed to narcoleptics and military fighter pilots to keep them awake. And I was taking those to just be great at my job in secret. You know, I wasn't really telling anybody about it. It was just like I wanted to hustle my face off and that that's the culture out there. So I see, you know, like... I know Gary Vaynerchuk, he's a great guy. I love what he does. But the hustle and grind mentality, the grind until like you've been grinded into dust is uh, something that you can do to yourself. And I was definitely doing it to myself. Like no one had my face to the, you know. There's something very appealing about that for some reason to young single guys. It's a young single guys for sure. It's also the culture, not only in San Francisco, but in other places around the world. So in Japan, for instance, they have a variation of it uh, called Kuroshi, which is death from overwork. Literally (laughs) is a phenomenon. Yeah, literally it's a phenomenon to die from working too hard in Japan. And it's an inability to say no. It's sacrificing your life for a job. And I did it to myself after I had to quit working with Tim, which was really difficult. I did it at the next job. So I spent a lot of time get out of that. It's been a few years and that's that's where anxiety came into play and how challenging that was. Struggling with those emotions, those feelings, but also the physical sensations of anxiety of, uh, you know, rapid heart rate, just constant fear. This feeling like you're constantly in fight or flight, twitching. It was just, it was exhausting. It sucked. And for anybody who wants to like kind of dive deep on this topic, if you Google anxiety cure, I'm usually in the top two results. Go to read that post and that describes it a lot more in depth. You can get, you know, I I have a free 10-day email course that just gives you tips on how to reduce those physical sensations and and get yourself back to normal but it was a, it was a rough 2 year period i kept those feelings to myself i was kept it secret and it hurt all my relationships because i hold myself up in my apartment 
my girlfriend at the time asked, what happened to you? Like, you're not the guy I remember. And I remember telling her I feel dead inside all the time and I don't know how to fix it. And she started crying and I was jealous that she could cry because I mm. couldn't like tap into that. The final event that got me to where I am now was after trying everything to get myself out, I came across a book called Play by Stuart Brown. And that's a book on why play evolved as a survival trait in human beings and other mammals. Uh, Play, I learned, is as essential as sleep for our mental health. There's a great line in the book that says the opposite of play is not work, it's depression. So when you deprive yourself of play, you literally become depressed. And that was sort of the aha moment that I thought, okay, it's true. I used to be a very playful person. I used to pull pranks. I used to make jokes. I used to do all these things that I stopped doing years ago. Maybe if I just reintroduce those things back into my life, it'll have an effect. And so this is an exercise I'd encourage everybody to do, everyone, every human being to do your play history. So Nathan, growing up, what did you do for fun that no adult was forcing you to do or grading you or paying you to do? What did you just do when you had your own free time? Well, I was outside all the time. So, you know, my two best friends lived within a block of where we lived and we were on our bikes until dark every day. So straight after school on our bikes, riding around the neighborhood, going onto building sites, playing like um, like hockey, you know, like in, in the, the car park out the back of the tennis club. Just, yeah, always moving, always outside. Yeah. And do you still do any of that stuff? I mean, not literally like with your best friends and that you grew up with, but do you still do those kinds of activities? I would have to say like I would only do it. I don't just do it for fun every day. It's not part of my daily practice. Like I go on a lot of adventures. I have a lot of cool experiences in my travels, but it's more like something you do, you schedule and then do, not something that's like a part of my life. Like when I was a kid, you didn't have to schedule it. Right. Yeah. And that's the challenge of becoming an adult or, or even a kid who, who lives in a neighborhood where there are no other kids nearby is not being able to like jump into spontaneous hangouts very easily. That's, yeah. that's the challenge with being an adult. So you do have to schedule like joy, basically. You can't depend on spontaneity, even though like the romantic in me would love for that to be the reality. It's just, it's, it's hard as an adult. So Listen, when I, was, I started when I scheduling... Introduced to you, like my coach told me about you uh, like two years ago, two and a half years ago. And he had read oh, your cool. book and he, he, he said to me, he said, you've got to read this book. It's essential for you. And the way he described it, he said, you know, when you phoned your friends when you were a kid, you didn't phone up and say, hey, do you want to go for a coffee? He right. said, do you want to come over and play? Yeah. And when did that stop? Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's that's exactly like kids don't go to conferences with business cards. Kids don't (laughs) go to the gym and jump on a treadmill. You know, like if if you saw a kid doing either of those things, you would wonder what's wrong with them. And yet, as an adult, like we justify that those are normal ways to connect with people or move. And uh, it's not. It's those are cultural things. And so you, you have to take it into your own hands that you're going to break out of those things. And yeah, so 
Peter asked, could you define play a bit more? What I mean by play is any activity that, well, again, it helps to go through your play history. So sit down and really, yeah, like these are the activities that flow from your soul. The things that are who you are at your core when no one's telling you to do things that you're, you're not being incentivized by grades. You're not being incentivized by money. You're not being incentivized by social status. You know, like you're not going to a fancy charity event to make yourself seem altruistic and whatever. Like that's not play. Like play is the thing that when you were growing up, you repeatedly and voluntarily turned to that you you did on your own that no one was forcing you to do and uh, beyond that i believe play is more than anything just a mindset it mm. is seeing the world as a playground rather than a place where you're either having to prove yourself or you're having to compete in battle with anybody or with everybody so it's really like improv more than anything else i think embodies play best which is you're accepting of everything you're even even mistakes that are made you roll with them you're not harsh on yourself you embrace every moment and you are you find yourself in flow just naturally with play it just happens i've also heard it's uh, defined as anything that you do where there's no focus on an outcome yeah, when you do something just better. for the sake of doing it yeah. So uh, there's a great book called uh, Infinite and Finite Games or uh, Finite and Infinite Games by James Cars. And that really breaks down in really clear terms, like what a world of play looks like versus the world that we tend to live in, which is future focused, productivity focused, outcome focused, like you said, Nathan. So yeah, I think that's great. That's beautiful. There's a question from Joe as well, and you kind of touched on what it looked like for you, but uh, how to recognize the signs of anxiety, knowing when to push through and knowing when downtime is necessary. She only uh, sees it retrospectively often. So how do we know when it's time? We're, we're just feeling like a little bit nervous. We're just feeling a little bit stressed, but you know that, that kind of helps us optimize performance as opposed to true anxiety. Yeah. So I'll give you a personal example. So I do some speaking, Joe, and with speaking, a lot of people say they have stage fright or they feel anxious before going on stage. And literally a stage trick is telling yourself, I'm not anxious, I'm excited. Um, so if you're faced with that kind of anxiety where it's it's sort of performance anxiety, you kind of have to push through that and just tell yourself, make the choice. Like these are symptoms of excitement. Now, there are symptoms of anxiety that are debilitating, such as having a panic attack when there's no immediate threats to your survival around you, right? There are, I think the answer, you're, you're trying to recognize the signs of anxiety. I would take the time, if I were you, and journal about why the fear? What is this fear and where is it coming from? So a personal example for me years ago, I mean, I was, I was struggling with these symptoms. Gosh, now it's been like seven years, seven years ago. I was struggling with them because I was afraid that 
the economy was going to break down. Everybody was going to be doggy dog. It wasn't quite survivalist nonsense, but it was it was teetering in that realm. And when I journaled about it, and when I gained some, I don't know, clarity and awareness, I realized like, wow, I'm just reading doom and gloom news all the time. Like I am falling for the clickbait. I am going deep down the rabbit holes of people who are deeply afraid and inviting you into their fear. And as soon as I cut that out and replaced it with more open-hearted media, I should say, whether it was fiction or music, a lot of those symptoms went away. But there are times where you have anxiety because you went through a legitimate trauma. And I do, like a lot of people think the word trauma means you were physically attacked. And that's not the case. You know, you could lose your job. You could move. You could, you know, and with moving, you lose your friends and so, or, or your support network. So there are any number of things where it can create these feelings. It's helpful to journal, uh, to pinpoint what the fear is and ask yourself, where is that fear coming from? Where is it stemming from? And is this going to be an ongoing thing? Or are there things that I can do in my setup, in my daily routine that can shift this away? And, and not make it such a problem. I hope that helps, Joe. Yeah, that's a great answer. One thing I found fascinating about your story, and you mentioned in your TED Talk, which is a, a great TED Talk that everyone should, should check out. You said that when you decided to confront your anxiety, you tried all the tradition, traditional methods. So you went to like a spiritual advisor, you did yoga, you did meditation, you tried therapy, and some of it would work temporarily for a day or two, but then you'd be back to normal. And I think it speaks to our culture how we often, in healthcare in general, we try and treat the symptoms rather than the cause. After all of those things, yours was so successful. Like you, you're the number one, number two most uh, Googled resource for curing anxiety. So it clearly works. You have thousands of reviews saying that your book has changed people's lives. Why do you think play was the answer as opposed to all these other traditional methods? Honestly, I think it's because. Was it Einstein who said, if you can't explain something to a child, like uh, if, if you can't explain it in terms simply enough that a child would understand it, it's, it's wrong. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's something to that. I think it resonated so strongly with a lot of people because they could see that. It, it, was, it was frustrating to me because I read all these other anxiety books and I never came across that answer until I read an evolutionary book. And that made sense to me. But I was like, well, there's there's nothing in the mental health space that's saying this message. That's why I didn't want to write that book. I didn't want to tell that story, you know, but I kind of had to. So the I tried everything and there were very few things that had lasting impacts. There were a few, but most of them uh, faded within an hour or a couple of days. And I really believe that a huge reason for that is the mind. So much of anxiety is in the mind. It is your thoughts. It is your consistent thoughts that have carried out, like they have a lot of momentum. And you've convinced yourself over and over that this is life, that this is real. And if you can make those thoughts dormant 
by replacing them with a new worldview. And that's effectively what I did. Obviously, I did activities that were playful and, and near and dear to me. But the first shift that I had was perhaps the world is not so serious. Perhaps you know, life, maybe the world is a playground. And I've been treating it as a proving ground or a battleground. And I need to go back to the way I was when I was a kid, when I was looking for the fun rather than looking for the money or looking for the the productivity, you know? Yeah, it's it's about changing almost the macro view of the world, the bigger picture. If you know, taking away the anxiety and the hard work and everything, what were some of the highlights of working alongside Tim? Oh, I mean, all of it. I would say I could go into so many directions with this question that it's hard for me to even choose. I mean, the first time I met Tim, the very first weekend, he took me with him on a private jet to Zion with a guy, you know, a few guys that he knew. And we went on a hike there and then flew back to San Francisco that same day. Like that was surreal. That's a, that's kind of a rock star thing, though. You know, the, like the real the real benefit to working with him was just seeing how he operated. I'd say for the vast majority of people who are exposed to his work for the first time, they're like, "Man, I didn't know anybody who who operates like this, who operates like a true entrepreneur, who's who's like trying to figure out how to minimize being in the business and working on the business instead, and really thinks of." life in terms that I think a lot of people spiritually knew were correct, but couldn't put words to it. You know, the, the, if you look back before the four hour work week came out, some of the biggest hits of movies, either cult classics or box office hits were Fight Club, Office Space, American Beauty. Those are the same three movies. If you think about it, it's like it is the fantasy of a guy who hates his job, quitting his job in crazy fashion, and then going to live whatever dream scenario fantasy that he has. Extraordinary and life. usually that... Yeah, going on to live an extraordinary life. Uh, an extraordinary life, but for literally all three of them, they come up with harebrained schemes or uh, their lives become much worse. Like Fight Club, they end up becoming terrorists. Uh, office Space, they end up becoming criminals. Uh, embezzlers uh, in American Beauty, he ends up, I think, becoming like uh, a sex offender, right? He tries to have sex with his daughter's friend. So this is a, an aside, uh, totally random. But you, you look at the culture back then, right? And that those three movies were striking a chord for people hated their jobs. Corporate jobs were soulless and there didn't seem to be a good alternative. And Tim was the guy who came in, acknowledged that, said, the world has changed. There are opportunities for all of you and, and ways that you can leverage technology to actually build a business that can sustain a lifestyle. And by the way, the retirement strategy is nonsense, which I think a lot of people knew or suspected, but didn't have it laid out in clear terms. So he gave a recipe book for escaping the corporate world. And so and you know, I, I was read the fascinated. Book before you met him? Yeah. Yeah. I'd read it a couple of times and I was just, I was fascinated with how his brain worked. And it felt like for the first time that I'd met, 
I'd encountered somebody who was like, wow, this guy could, you know, this is not a diss on any of my elders or professors or anything, but it really felt like this is somebody who could really challenge me and help my thinking grow. And I think I could help him as well. So it was just cool. Like what was invaluable to me was working with someone of his caliber and growing comfortable with it, like growing basically. And the number of people he introduced me to, the guys who'd created YouTube and Uber and Evernote and just being exposed to how they think was just phenomenal. And, and now he does that obviously for millions of people and the world's a lot richer because of it. Now, it, of course, like wasn't easy. It was, it was intense. It was really challenging sometimes, but I wouldn't go back and change anything. I mean, it brought me to where I am. So you said that when you first reached out to him, you thought that you, you had a lot of respect for him and what he was doing. And you also thought that you could help him. How did you think you could help him? I mean, this is the, this is the philosophy I kind of lay out in my first book, Recession Proof Graduate. I think anybody can help anybody, but you have to speak to their problems, right? So... I can't remember exactly where he was in his business and what he was doing online, but I just saw room for improvement. I saw things that were suboptimal, things that could be improved. And then I offered to fix those things using my skills. So I was skilled at digital marketing. I was good at uh, video editing back then. Not as good as I am now, but uh, good enough, right? Like back then, not a lot of people were doing online video. So I offered, I offered to help him with a few things like that. He said, okay, let's do a few tasks together. They went well. And we just kind of built a relationship digital, like remotely and uh, eventually built enough trust. And I, I proved to be reliable and to do good work that... Uh, we ended up working together. Yeah, it's really cool. Do you guys keep in touch? Is he uh, still a mentor to you yeah. now? Yeah, yeah. Um, we had lunch, I don't know, a month ago. Um, he's actually in Austin now. So yeah, we stay in touch. Yeah, that's awesome. I just love that. It's fascinating to me. And how did Austin come about? Why did you choose Austin as your uh, place to live? Well, uh, the truth is I was reenacting The Shining in Colorado. I was working on a book and... The <laughs> I was working on a book that I didn't end up publishing because it, it became a mess. But there were 10 days in a row where it was six degrees. Or no, I'm sorry. It was six, six days in a row where it was less. And I realized like I was cooped up in this condo working on a book. And I was looking forward to like interacting with cashiers. And I just said, I need to get the hell out of here. And I looked at warmer climates in Austin my good buddy Tucker Max had just moved down here. So I went and visited him and ended up actually living with him for a year and staying down here and have been here for five years. Very cool. Uh, yeah. I have a bunch of questions that people wrote. I think you might have seen them on Facebook throughout the week. Um, do you mind if I just rattle off some of these yeah. uh, questions? Sure. Awesome. So uh, Ben Clark asks, what moves you? A lot. A lot of things. I like that's part of being a human being, right? Who has emotions. Like a lot of things move me. My body moves me. <laughs> I mean, I have a daughter. I work with people that I love. I'm married to a woman I love. Like I'm moved every day. And I think if you're not moved, you're missing things. 
you're you're in a zone that your your focus is too narrow. I mean, a moved every day is the answer. And it's difficult for me to say, like, I've told one other person this. I cried tears of joy for like 15 minutes the other night meditating because at our company retreat, like we we go through this uh, exercise where we all basically take an hour or two to express what we love in the in the person who's in the hot seat, like what we most admire and value in them. And it's it's like going to your own funeral, you know, to mm. people are commemorating you. And it's it's really powerful. So I just I don't know. I'm so blessed in so many areas that I am always moved unless I'm staring at a computer screen for too long. <laughs> and, then, and in that case, I get kind of zombified. So Yeah, beautiful answer. Uh, Annalise Pease asks, how do you reconcile the contrast of living in the moment against the push for reaching out to the future? Yeah, it's a great, great question. So our minds, our ego is in the new part of our brain, you know, like it, it evolved to allow us to plan for the future, to kind of revisit the past, think about things. And it's a really useful tool, actually. Like, I, I don't have any problem with planning for the future, but you can also stay in the moment. Like, it, it's not one or the other, right? You, you can do both. I can be in the moment by going to plan something. I can be immersed in that. The problem is if you're spending all your time in the future all your thoughts in the future or all your thoughts in the past. I mean, I've, I've heard many a times depression being described as you're living in the past and anxiety described as you're, you're worried about the future, regretting the past or worrying about the future. So that's why I like play so much and get, getting your body moving, going out, doing something like you are forced into the future or into the present. Like you mm. can't be living in the future. That's not how it works. So yeah, I, I, I think you can hold both at the same time. It's just problematic when you're exclusively being dominated by your, by your ego, right? And, and just constantly living in the future. So meditation, there's a reason it's cliche now. There's a reason that it has caught on in the corporate world and everybody's throwing it around. It's a great practice to train your brain to say, you're training it like a dog. You're saying, sit. <laughs> Whenever it starts drifting too much into the future, you're like, up, oh, I caught that. Sit. Back here, breathe. All you're doing is breathing. Nothing else. Stop it, brain. Uh, that's all meditation is. And meditation is also feeling your feelings. You know, it's easy to, it's easy to go live in your mind in the future or worry about the past and be totally not present with how you're feeling. So that's kind of the beauty of meditation as well, is it kind of allows those feelings to just pass through and, and do their thing. Yeah, I, in the Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram 7, which has been described as uh, like the perpetual child. And a description I like is that the world is not exciting enough for me, so I have to find ways to make it more exciting. And one of the traps is that the way I make it more exciting is by planning and looking into the future too much. So meditation helps ground me in the present, even though it might feel boring or not that exciting. It helps me come back to the present. Mm -hmm. uh, Holly Walsh asked the question, what is your best and most practical advice to your younger self? Cliche question, but how do you answer that? I, 
I'm not a huge fan of this question <laughs> uh, because my younger self is gone and I got to where I got to because I made mistakes because I was young and it is what it is. I mean, if, if you want to ask a variation of this question, it would be, what is your advice to a 25 year old? I'm working in this industry. I'm trying to get to this. Like have me address you. I don't really care about my younger self as much anymore because he's he has done his time and now I'm here. So, yeah, it's a good answer. There's a, I'm just scrolling back to a question that Peter uh, or kind of a comment that he said that based on your story and his own, that anxiety and the resulting burning out was you know was a catalyst to change. So, how do you balance between changing your circumstances that led to it and the management of anxiety? Yeah, yeah I just think it's a good point. Everything that happened yeah. to you led to where you are now. Yeah. And uh, I've heard this from a lot of people who've been through really traumatic stuff or really hard times. Is it eventually led to these greater gifts later on? Uh, if you're open to accepting that, hey, like my world's expanding, it's growing, things are getting better if I allow them to, or if you maintain that optimism and that, that feeling of, of hope and joy in life, and it can be hard or challenging, I should say. It can be it can be difficult to remember that, but you do have a choice of focusing on anxiety, focusing on those feelings, focusing on the fear, or focusing on the joy. And you can replace one with the other anytime. It's a choice, but I I prefer to get momentum in the joy realm because you can really thrive and flourish as a human being much easier if you're focused on doing things that evoke joy. Yeah, the first part of your answer there reminded me about what you said about changing your worldview too. If you can create a belief, an empowering belief that things happen for me, not to me. And I think that's a big shift that allows you to powerfully move through those challenges. Totally. I mean, you're not a victim to life. Like you, you may have gone through some bad experiences, but you're not a victim to your existence. You, you get to be here. Perfect. Beautiful. Charlie, thank you. Uh, you mentioned, I have to do a shout out to New Zealand. You mentioned just before we came on the camera that you spent time in Christchurch, where I'm from. That's a super yeah. cool connection that we had. Yeah. I love so, New Zealand. I, I have said it's my, my favorite place in the world. That's awesome. Any cool memories that you can remember from your time there? Oh, yeah. So many. I mean, like the first time I went to Kaikoura, uh, in the mountain tasting there. Yes, uh, that was beautiful. I loved visiting Nelson. Have you ever heard of Wawara Riki Beach? No. I think it's near Nelson. <laughs> okay. um, but they're baby seals. Just playing, like we're the only ones on the beach. Baby seals swam up to us, let us pet them. Like the mom seals were just watching nearby. And it was just magic. It was it, like, I've never experienced anything quite like that, apart from maybe like in Africa, but animals don't let you come up to them uh, or, you know, they don't come up to you. Uh, it was, it was wonderful. Yeah, we even and, have a friendlier animals. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. One of my favorite memories of my life was spending two weeks on the road by myself. I, I kind of realized like, I'm not here to study exclusively. Like I'm also here to be abroad. So I did a two week road trip on my own. Uh, and during school, I went 
bungee jumping, skydiving, uh, which were really surprisingly very empowering things that, you know, you, you kind of face death with those sports. Yeah. Wawariki Beach. Thank you, Emily. That's uh, one of the, the things that confuses people. Yeah, how do you W-H-A pronounce is pronounced with an F. Oh, Wawariki. Are you serious? Yeah. I had no idea. Well, uh, I've been saying it wrong for 11 years. So always good. <laughs> always good to have that corrected. So that's the great thing about this podcast. Everybody learns, including the guest. Yes. Yeah, man. Uh, I've been humbled uh, this deep into the interview. That's great. I, I so, love that, uh, what you said, though, because people will say to me whenever they say, oh, I'm going to New Zealand. What should I do? I say, fly into the South Island, get a camper van, RV, and just point in any direction. And you'll be fine. Yep. <laughs> yeah. The cool thing about visiting the North Island is like I was I was like on the way over there thinking maybe I'll stop and visit uh, Hobbiton and see the Shire and and what it's like on the set. But the whole North Island basically looks like that. It's all green, rolling hills and very yeah, very lots pretty, of farmland. Yeah, the South Island, South Island's amazing. Yeah, for sure. Charlie, thank you. I want to give you an opportunity. Uh, I know uh, you're working for Scribe Media and can put up your website here if people want to learn uh, more about you or find any of those resources, your videos, your books. But is there anything else that you're working on that you want to share with people? Yeah. Uh, So my wife and I are actually working on a project together where, you know, we found... And, the, and this is a total sidetrack from everything we've just talked about, right? So like you can find my books and stuff and everything on, on my site. Like that's no problem. But something I'm working on that I'm excited about to continue working on, we're, we're working on this notebook for married couples. So one of the challenges of being married is that you kind of lose track of each other's stories very quickly, like what's going on in each other's lives. Uh, what are priorities? If, you know, during the day I'm at work and she's taking care of our daughter, a lot can happen over the of just one day or one week or one month. And what we've been doing for over a year is doing weekly meetings where we just kind of talk about the banal, normal, weekly stuff and go over things. We express gratitude for each other. We make sure all these areas of our lives are sort of in check. And if we need to help each other with anything and what is our you know monthly date that we're going to do, that sort of thing. So if anybody's interested in that sort of thing, uh, if you want to kind of help give us some feedback on where we are, like this is nowhere close to being a product yet, but we've been working on it for several weeks and testing it. And we're at the point now where we could show it to some people, but only if you are interested in giving it like feedback, actually trying it with your partner, offering ways to improve it, that sort of thing. If you're just looking as a uh, just to check it out, but not use it, I'd rather you not reach out. No offense, but <laughs> like I've, I won't send it to you in that case. I only want people who, who are like, yeah, I would use that in my marriage and my partner would too. That would be the one thing. Perfect. And they should reach you through your website to ask about that? Yeah. Yeah. There's just a contact tab. Feel free to reach me through that. Awesome. Thanks, Charlie. Uh, Charlie, thank you. Uh, The last question, super quick before we finish, is uh, we ask it to everyone that comes on the show. It's a crowd favorite. And it's, what is your dark side? And how do you embrace it? What is my dark side? And how do I embrace it? 
what is the before I answer that? What is the craziest thing you've heard? Uh, Dr. Robert Glover, the author of No More Mr. Nice Guy, described a pretty intense uh, sexual fantasy. So you can, if you want to hear that, you can go and look up the episode with Robert Glover. But it's usually something along uh, the lines of uh, like you've got to watch repressed anger, you've got to watch that you work too hard. Yeah, there's a few things. So I'm I'm definitely a pleaser. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a giver. Like if you read Give and Take, I am by Adam Grant, which I recommend to everybody. It's a great book. I am a giver to the core. But the negative of that is I'm also a pleaser. So that can mean hiding true feelings in certain cases where I'm upset and uh, just accommodating the other person's like what they what they want. So that can lead to repressed anger, like you said. So I, I have to be mindful of when that stuff starts bottling up. I need to like release it. I need to journal about it. I need to talk about it. That is a big thing for me. That's a huge thing, actually, why I do... One of the reasons I do the marriage meeting, one of the things that we ask is, is there a difficult conversation we need to have? My wife doesn't really struggle with this nearly as much as I do. She's not a pleaser. She will bring up problems the second they come up, which I'm really grateful for because I struggle with that. That is, a, that is a big thing for me. There's, there's other dark sides, but like I don't struggle with them as much. Like the workaholic thing, I do a much better job of checking out. Like I have not struggled with feelings of like the kind of debilitating anxiety I described in seven years. You know, it's like it just isn't, it isn't a part of my life anymore, which is kind of like part of the reason why I do a lot less of these interviews now, even though, uh, you know, it's just as valid, if not more to like needed, I think, in the world because so many people struggle with it. Part of the reason is it'd be like if you had pneumonia when you were 20 and I was like, Nathan, we got to come on the show. We got to talk about how you overcame pneumonia. You'd be like, yeah, but it was a temporary illness. <laughs> You know, it was, it was hard. It was scary when I had it, but I overcame it and now I'm healthy. So that's why it's a little weird sometimes to talk about this stuff. But yeah, I mean, keep talking about it because I've, I've seen it help people's lives and in some cases save their lives. So if you're struggling with these things now, A, no, you're obviously not alone. There are millions and millions of people who struggle with it. B, great place to start is sign up for uh, those tips. I'm not selling you anything in uh, those those tips. Like, they're free. And uh, yeah, that's that. Beautiful. Yeah, the, the difficult conversations one's great. I, Brene Brown has a mantra for it that I choose to feel discomfort now to avoid feeling resentment later. Or, or to have things completely blow up and get destroyed <laughs> later. Yeah, like, that's a bit of a long Really quote. bad if you, if you hold things up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. She, she picked a much more elegant quote, which is why she's a much best, a major bestselling author. Charlie, this has been awesome. I've had so much fun. Thank you. It's a real privilege. And I appreciate you, yeah. um, you coming on here and taking a chance with me to, to do this. I've really enjoyed it. And I hope yeah. everyone yeah, will get so much value friend. out of it. So thanks, man. I appreciate that. Thank you, Nathan. And thank you to everybody who was on. Well, there you go, my friends, my wonderful conversation with Charlie Hohn. I hope you enjoyed that. If you think someone would benefit from listening to this conversation, send it to them, email them, or uh, just share it around on Facebook, and I will love you forever. Thank you for joining us. I'll be back next week with one of my favorite people, Dr. Gay Hendricks, in episode 64 of The Nathan Seward Show. 
That was The Nathan Seward Show, inspiring you to live an extraordinary life.